Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode of the show for you today. Joining us on the other side of the mic is our friend Dan Tapiero over at One Roundtable Partners. This isn't the first time you've come on the show, but it's definitely an interesting environment for you to come on the show. Uh, you sit in probably... Uh, we, we talk about this all the time, uh, one-on-one in, in our messages. You're kind of in a weird island as an investor on the private equity side in crypto. There aren't too many of you uh, investing in these types of clips, um, in these types of companies. Um, we can get into some of the firms that you've invested in, but for folks who are maybe unfamiliar, it's kind of the it's it's the large cap uh, of, of crypto. You're familiar with probably a number of them from Kraken to Ledger. This is Dan's sort of ballpark in his arena. He's not playing. He's not punting into coins that can 1,000x or 100x. He's on the growth side. So, obviously, this is like the category of company that has struggled, um, even, even as we've seen um, a liquidity tailwind in coins. I mean, I think the poster child of this, and we won't have you pick on specific people. I can do, I can do that myself. But you have a number of companies that have just seen, um, you know, who are maybe at the let's say C level and above, that raised those monster uh, monster raises at, at eye popping valuations back in the last cycle, and now they're sort of uh, not doing as well, right? A lot of down rounds, um, a lot of recent raises without noting what the valuation is. Um, with that foundation, Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Um, you said that the, there's never been a, the opportunity set has never been greater. Um, hopefully I, I gave a nice little foundation there for you. Um, what's your view of the market right now? You seem excited. You've been traveling a lot. What's, what's the latest? I, I don't think the characterization is exactly right. Um, there haven't been actually that many down rounds. And in fact, I think the, um, the pressure has come more on the pricing of equity for companies that raised at ridiculous valuations. Um, so companies that raised at 30, 50, 80 times revenue, um, not surprisingly, their stock in the secondary market um, is, priced, is priced lower. And I think, um, you know, many of the, I would say, growth equity players, PEs, PE guys from the traditional world who came in and pushed up prices in 21 and 22, they've sort of moved out. And we know who those names are. You know who they are. Um, you know, fortunately for the 24 businesses uh, that we uh, own or, and that are active today um, in our portfolio, um, and this is the portfolio of 10T Holdings, just to be clear, uh, I'm the founder, CEO, CIO, of course, of 10T Holdings, as well as One Roundtable Partners. Um, and there's a new uh, 1RT fund uh, that you, you you mentioned. But um, we didn't really pay more than 10 to 12 times revenue for any of the businesses. Um, we passed on, thankfully, uh, FTX three times. We passed on Celsius. We passed on BlockFi. We passed on companies that we love. I mean, Fireblocks and Blockdaemon. Um, these are you know great companies. They just raised at very high valuations, and and we we passed on those deals. And so our portfolio actually has held in quite well, 
despite the bear phase. And, and now the bear phase is clearly over. I mean, in the last six to eight weeks, we've all seen and felt, you know, just dramatic change. And I have to say, I mean, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but um, almost all of our companies are going to have their best quarter uh, in the fourth quarter, uh, probably since the last bull market. So the feeling of, I don't know, the dire feeling that maybe you had six, nine months ago, um, you know, when Gensler comes out and sues uh, Coinbase and um, you had just the, the uh, during the summer, it just felt like um, even though Bitcoin and Ethereum had bottomed uh, in Q4, I think in Q4 22, we sort of went sideways there for a while and bumped along the low and sentiment wasn't great. Um, and then we had the SBF trial and every single day people are watching it. Um, at least in the United States, uh, there was definitely a feeling of, you know, oh, it's pretty tired in the space. And I, I think that's, that's over. Um, so I, I think we're in a good position in terms of opportunities uh, going forward, I mean, these opportunities in the secondary, you can buy stock at 50 to 70% discounted from their, you know, previous rounds. Um, you know, we deployed $1.2 billion uh, in 10T over, you know, from January 21 on, 600 million of that was in the secondary. So we are a very large player, if not the largest, I think in the secondary for Web3 crypto blockchain, digital asset uh, companies, and especially growth companies. So the, the opportunity set is there. And by the way, the sellers, the prices have come down in some cases because the revenue of the businesses has dropped. But in many cases, it's funds that are exiting the space. It's, you know, a, a seed investor who would like to have a little more liquidity. And it's employees who, you know, have a lot of stock but need to pay their taxes and you know, would like a little extra liquidity. And so we really are sitting in the middle of this ecosystem. People come to us directly. Uh, the inquiry, the reverse inquiry is just is just tremendous. So that's gonna be, that's only 30 to 40% of our fund, the current fund that's open. Uh, we're going to have a first close in the first quarter. Um, and I think it'll be minimum of 200 million on that first close. Um, I think we could raise seven to eight hundred million just because that's the opportunity set. Uh, you know, we'll see if investors cooperate. But now, is that a seven hundred to eight hundred you're going to raise? Is that is that seven hundred to eight hundred you're going to raise going to be deployed in the secondary or, or? No, no, no. I I think probably a third. You know, it's really it depends upon you know what the other opportunity set is. We will we will be leading rounds, of course, BC and later deploying in the secondary. And then I think there are also companies that we'd like to invest in where we think we can help them uh, on an operating basis. And that's sort of a new thing for us. Um, we've added two very senior partners um, to help us build an operating component internal uh, to the fund, which is completely new. Um, we've had companies that have actually requested or you know asked us to get more involved and frankly, I'm not an operator. I haven't run a big business before. Um, I brought in an old friend of mine, Tad Smith. Tad is the ex-CEO of Sotheby's. He's the ex-CEO of Madison Square Garden. He's an investor uh, in the funds and uh, has been an advisor uh, to 10T for quite a while. And Tad is building a team internally to the fund that we can drop off into some of our portfolio companies 
um, to help them with just, let's call it operating processes. I don't know of anybody, maybe except my Cagby, but I don't know anybody um, who in the space has been a CEO of a large public company. Um, of course, he sold that business to Patrick Drahi for $4 billion in 2019. So um, Tad is very experienced, thrilled to have him. And then also Randy Little joined us from FT Partners, you know, the leading fintech merchant bank. And, and Randy was very focused on crypto uh, businesses there. And he adds a whole uh, other skill set for us um, in terms of structuring deals and, you know, was 15 years at J.P. Morgan beforehand. And so um, our focus has kind of morphed a little bit. Yes, we're raising a fund, um, but we're also finding um, that, uh, you know, there's a there's an opportunity for us to help our uh, help our companies. Um, get to the next level, whether that be an IPO or just streamlining a part of the business or whatever it is. When you look at that Series C, B stage, um, are we seeing, uh, I imagine we're seeing valuations creep up, but what do multiples look like? Are, are we going to enter into a a phase similar to 2021 where companies are raising at 80 uh, X multiples of revenue, or is that era over and then maybe we can tie in macro because what's happening in crypto in the on the private side and on the liquid side mirrors a lot of what we're seeing in just traditional tech, right? So walk us through walk us through that. What's what's the sort of view on the ground, and to what extent is it mirroring just the regular market? Um, it's not clear to me, you know, whether we'll see it again. I. What's happened is there was a lot of capital that moved into the space, and um, right now there really aren't any. I think maybe there's one or two, but I, you know, I, there really aren't any growth equity funds uh, out there that are exclusively focused on, you know, Web three, blockchain, crypto, digital assets. Aside from us, and certainly not at the size. So. Um, if we're going to go back to those types of multiples, I don't think it's going to happen quickly. Uh, I think people are going to have to recommit to the space. Um, but it, it might happen, and that's part of the reason why I'm right, raising this fourth fund now, because I'm worried that prices are going to start to move up. They haven't yet. Okay, You would think they would have after the last six to eight weeks. There was actually a deal that we thought... Um, that we were uh, going to complete and um, the seller walked away uh, because, you know, prices had moved. That was something that was being solidified over the summer. And so it's happened, it, it's happened once with us, but I'm not seeing it generally across the space yet. Um, but inevitably, I mean, look, Frank, I like, I don't know if you saw this, but last week uh, in Abu Dhabi, and this is a, a different, you know, there was a Bitcoin miner, you know, has 11% of the total world hash rate, um, had an IPO that was 33 times oversubscribed. And the print on the first day, the first print was up 50%. So there's clearly demand from, I would say, more traditional equity investors um, and that, that's not on NASDAQ, right? I mean, that's that's on Abu Dhabi, which is a smaller exchange. And I think that's something we might see, frankly, um, that maybe 
uh, two, three years ago, some of the companies that are in our portfolio, I think we'll have some IPOs in the next 18 to 24 months. Um, and But it's not completely clear to me that it'll be on NASDAQ. It could be on UK, could be Switzerland, could be Hong Kong, Singapore, might even be, you know, Riyadh or Abu Dhabi. It's not, not clear to me. Um, you know, you want to go where there's interest, where there's demand. Uh, you see an IPO like that and, you know, versus um, being in the U.S. where there's just a constant barrage of attack. And I mean, Jamie Dimon's comments recently were just completely preposterous. Um, you know, it just the mood out there. People listen to him. Um, I think we're going to listen to Larry Fink and we're going to we're going to watch that ETF and Bitcoin and ETH. Um, you know, come out. I think that's going to be more important generally for U.S. Uh, investors than than listening to Jamie's comments. Um, but the reality is, is that there is a lot of hesitancy here and not, in fact, the complete opposite in other places. So I think, look, our business, as you know, is completely global. And 85% of the total world cryptocurrency trading volume is done outside the U.S., uh, it's a global business and our existing portfolio and our future portfolio, you know, we, we have a third invested in the U.S., a third in Asia and a third in Europe. I see no reason why, you know, that would change. It's a it's a global business. Um, and then there's the emerging markets where we know those countries sort of have a deep understanding of the value of Bitcoin and a savings technology. Right. So. There are many different facets. I mean, if you're in Korea, it's all about blockchain gaming. Um, you know, I was in Japan and it was a lot about the um, Web2, big, you know, Web2 video game companies like Nintendo trying to figure out how to incorporate blockchain. You go to Paris, when we met there, it's, it's, um, it's about really the luxury goods companies trying to figure out how do they incorporate NFTs to get closer to their clients and, um, you know, have a proof of authenticity. Um, you know, you go to Denver and it's, it's it's about ETH Denver when that conference is, and that's what it's about. And you go to Bitcoin Miami and it's all the OG Bitcoiners. So it's very interesting because different places around the world are focusing on different aspects of this world. And so that's very different from other things that we've seen, you know, in the last 20, 30 years. Can you walk us through the health of the companies uh, that exist within your portfolio? Is it night and day to the beginning of the year compared to this quarter? Walk us through some of the the sort of um, high level um, maybe metrics or or um, growth areas that you're seeing. Yeah, funnily enough, I, I actually uh, got into a little trouble with one of our companies because I in an interview talked about actually their revenues in a pretty explicit way. I, I didn't really realize that I shouldn't have, but anyway, um, so I, I'm aware I can't. Well, maybe you can that, aggregate but, it for us. Yeah. But let me, let me just say that. So for instance, um, most of the exchanges in the portfolio, I think we'll have a better year this year than last year. It's not quite at the 21 uh, level. I would say it's probably now, back to 60 to 70 percent of the 21 level. And remember this, it's still up three times. This is volume on exchange or revenue on most exchanges 
um, up three times from 2020. Uh, and you can look across our portfolio and, you know, that's pretty much true. There are also businesses that we have that really aren't correlated uh, necessarily with the price of Bitcoin or ETH. Um, you know, we have a company in the node and API infrastructure space that I think is going to have a record uh, is, is just recent. I think Q2 was a record for them in revenue. And they've been going through all sorts of cost cutting and they've just done a fantastic job. I think it's good. They potentially going to have a record quarter uh, revenue. So that's another type of business. The NFT businesses uh, that we have, I think, are all on the upswing now. Uh, one of the ones that was waiting pretty much the entire year to do a, a drop. Um, they did it. I think it's been a big success. You know, we were waiting for revenue to come in. Uh, and now, you know, we have visibility. Um, so the first three quarters were tough. And I don't think anyone, you know, would say it differently. Um, 21 was an outlier year. But I think by certainly by 2025, I think we're going to eclipse uh, the 2021, um, you know, revenue numbers. Um pretty much across the board. And if we, if a certain company doesn't, it's because they haven't, you know, executed on a micro uh, basis. I mean, I, I think, um, again, I have a very bullish view also on Bitcoin, you know, I, I and I've had this view all year. I mean, I, I think we see certainly over 100,000 is very conservative by 25. Um, you know, it's hard to, to pinpoint these things. I think ETH definitely six, eight, 10,000 is not, is not crazy. Uh, give us eighteen to twenty-four months. It's it just—it just won't move. It just won't What's move, that? Dan. Doesn't want to move. ETH, yeah. uh, ETH doesn't want to move. Well, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I, I, what sort of underpins your conviction in that in that bullish thesis? Are there any macro headwinds or tailwinds that you see helping uh, lift lift price up? Yeah, I mean. I think we wouldn't be at these prices if the Fed had not gone on what I think was a, you know, an, a, a, an over tightening uh, uh, path. I mean, they raised rates from zero to five. Liquidity definitely dropped significantly. Um, I had thought early in the year that inflation uh, would come down all year and growth. Growth has been pretty steady. Inflation has come down. I, in fact, when the Fed turned super aggressive. It was when the CPI hit, you know, whether it was seven or eight. And I think it's probably one of the biggest, I don't know, central bank gaffes in a long time. They absolutely panicked at the, at the exact, exact wrong moment. That's not to say that interest rates shouldn't be, let's say, 3%, uh, but raising them to five was, I think, a dramatic error. And I was wrong about that. I, I just thought if inflation was going they to were too slow. Rate, they were too slow and they raised too fast. They were too slow and raised too fast. Right. I mean, well, they were too slow at getting to the problem. It, it was clear that CPI was going to come down from eight, and I thought to about three. What I didn't get right was I just didn't think it was possible that the Fed would continue raising uh, from three to five, even though inflation, and there were a lot of leading indicators, uh, you know, would suggest that, um, that it was going to get down there. So, just imagine, I mean, like we're 43,000 Bitcoin and the two-year note is still, you know, 4.2 and the 10-year note is, uh, I think, uh, two-year note, 
around just let's say four and a quarter, four and a half. I, I'm getting the two-year and ten-year mixed up, but um, you know, if the two-year were two percent, where do you think you know Bitcoin would be? I mean, just on that very simple metric. That's the question. That's you're the, that's the question. One twenty-five, one fifty. Forget about all the positive things going on in the space broadly. Um, if you look at just usage, but does the risk-free rate come down that low? I think it does. I think we can get down to three uh, in the next 18 months. Uh, I do. And, um, you know, where it goes so from that's there. One, that's, that e one, yeah. that's one strong um, tailwind for liquidity in crypto. I think the other thing that um, people uh, forget about is the extent to which there's almost no leverage in crypto right now, at least on the institutional scale that existed in the in the zero interest rate uh, policy uh, boom of crypto, you had you had the ZERP phenomenon underpinning the rally, but you also had tons and tons of leverage. If you look at something like the Genesis data from I don't know, let's call it Q2 2021, it was eye popping. I mean, the numbers that they were uh, the origination numbers um, year over year were insane. There are no lenders right now, so you, you have well, to there's think. One, there's one that we own, um, but there, there are very few. Ledin uh, has survived as the only sort of CFI yeah, lender. They survived. Maybe there's yeah. another one or two. I yeah. But the scale is is nowhere near the same, and I'm sure they're not. I mean, you have to just think about all the leverage that was in the system at the same time as um, you had zero interest rates, and I mean now you have Bitcoin almost you know, getting close to where it was during that, that frothy period with substantially less leverage, I would argue, but maybe maybe you think differently. And then, of course, with higher interest rates. Yeah, I think it's going to come back. I love the idea that Bitcoin uh, is pure collateral. I, I really do believe that. And ETH, too, um, I think people are going to borrow against their Bitcoin. And ETH, I think it's a lucrative business. We had some bad actors involved. We had some guys who got out over the ski, their skis. They got burned. But that business is going to come back. Um, it's just, it's too attractive in my view. Um, and there's too much need for it, too much of a demand for it. Huge demand. It just needs to come back within the right parameters, with, with the right sort of risk parameters, counterparty risks, thinking about collateral in, in a responsible way. Um, I can only hope. But we shall see. History has a very um, constantly repeats itself. We often see. You think people will learn their lessons, but they sometimes do not. Well, I think people have learned their lesson. I mean, you know, there were a lot of blowups, and I think the people who got out of their, over their skis are, are, are kind of gone. Um, you know, that's the way markets work. I, it's one of the things I love about this space is that. I really, you know, and I say this sometimes on Twitter or X, that, you know, it's really the the only true free market that's left. Like, there's no government interference. There's no intervention. No one gets bailed out. It's just, it's unbelievably pure in that way. Um, and we used to think in the 90s that the traditional markets were were that way. A lot of free market advocates coming out of the 80s and Reagan, et cetera. And um, you really see it in this space, right? People blow up and go away. And 
you know, it's a natural cycle. Um, you know, it's a good point. I mean, it's, 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 it's a pretty brutal capitalistic environment to be in crypto. Yeah. The most, I mean, I've never seen, uh, anything like that. I mean, in the currency markets, you have lots of currency intervention, of course, post 08, you have Q, QE, right? You didn't have that in the 90s. Um, you know, it just the government interference. Now you have lots of com go um, governments and sovereign entity entities that own stock. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, very few government entities owned stock, right? Uh, actually own the equity of companies. Um, so I just... You know, I, I, th those guys, they play by different rules. There's no mark to market. They, you know, essentially can monetize things or they can uh, issue more fiat to do whatever they want. Right. If you're a if you're a sovereign fund and you report to the government, well, that sovereign fund, the government transfers you money that it prints up, whether it's in Swiss franc or pounds or whatever. Uh, there's none of that in this world. I mean, you know. And if and if if when it happens and it's done in excess, and it's because of a bad actor or someone who's providing a product that isn't good, they get crushed, literally crushed. Um, anyway, I, as you said, it's a brutal capitalist uh, environment, but I think that we're seeing the benefits of it, um, and I say that because the space today has total value. So all the value of all the cryptocurrency and all the equity, that's how we compute it, the digital asset ecosystem, is $2.3 trillion. Okay, when I had the idea for the first fund, it was the middle of 19, it was 300 billion. So we've gone from 300 billion to 2.3. Okay, 18 months ago at the peak, it was 3.5. But like- And, and remind me, Dan, that the, 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 the thinking behind the name was that that total value yeah. would go to- 10 trillion? Is that where you, yeah, got, that's so where you got 10 T, right? I, when I had the idea for the fund, I, I just didn't, I had to sort of map out my view and I didn't think anyone would believe me that I thought we were going to do a 30 X in 10 years. And it was 300 billion. And I thought the 30 X in 10 years sort of gets you to 10 trillion. So I called the fund 10 T stands for 10 trillion. And, you know, we hit 3.5 18 months ago. So that was a 10 X in, you know, three years, it was very two and a half years. Um, but I actually feel during this next bull phase, we really could get up to this seven, eight, nine, ten trillion uh, number. What, yeah, so I guess what, what I'm saying is, is that the, the increase in the value in the space, this march up, despite the fact that we have 70% drawdowns every three years, is telling you that um, it's an affirmative sign off on the capitalist process. You follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like if, if this were a negative development, we would have gone down from 300 to 100 and the space would have disintegrated. That's not what's happening. We're moving towards mm -hmm. this idea that all things of value will eventually be put on a blockchain and reside somewhere in this digital asset ecosystem. I think the TAM, the total addressable market for even the concept is hundreds of trillions. So we're still very early uh, in this whole, you know, what they call process of adoption. 
right? Well, let's maybe sort of talk about some. Um, you, you've been traveling a lot, as we talked about before we turned on the mics. Um, what type of capital allocators are out there on the sidelines in in other regions of the world outside of the United States, in Asia, in the Middle East, and to what extent is that something that can be a tailwind for the space? Um, a lot of people aren't thinking about the the allocators that, you know, most people, when they think about institutional adoption, right, they just think about, you know, to bring in Jamie Dimon again, banks like JP Morgan or, or investment banks. Um, but there's a huge um, long list of different types of capital allocators who are probably keen to get involved in crypto. What have you seen from your travels? Yeah, I mean, I've never traveled more than I have this year. I mean, for me, um, and it's not just capital allocators. It's interest. It's interest in our companies. It's wanting to develop sort of strategic relationships with them. Um, you know, I did that event in Dubai in May uh, where I brought our five, um, five of our largest uh, investments, the CEOs of, of those companies, uh, and the Minister of the Economy actually sponsored it. Uh, the CEO of the, the regulator uh, is an old friend, but also, you know, helped put that together. And so it's interesting, within a six-week period, they went from, Dan, you should come and bring some of your companies to talk to us, to a full-fledged event at the Museum of the Future with 200 guests that the minister invited in a closed-door situation. Uh, it was more of an educational symposium, I would call it. It wasn't, you know, um, a marketing event at all. We were just bringing our existing companies and exposing them to all sorts of, you know, different, it wasn't just capital allocators, but like businessmen. Um, you know, you have the sovereign entities uh, in many of these countries uh, that are interested, but there are also a huge number of family offices uh, I would say, especially in Singapore and Hong Kong, uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, um, and and Switzerland, of course, has always had. Uh, there's there's always been a strong interest there. So, I just I think that look, it's it's hard to do. It's hard to to go on the road for two weeks and do five meetings a day and speak to people. Um, but the interest level is there, and in many cases the the political will is there. And I think you're just going to see a lot more. I mean, you saw um, you saw Gemini opened up, uh, I think, a headquarters in Dublin. And Andreessen, I think, opened something up in the UK in the summer um, after some of the attacks uh, from Gensler, etc. And so I, I just think that the U.S. at the moment is on pause. It's possible that with the election and a political change one way or the other, uh, things might change. And I actually think it's not sort of Democrat or Republican, which is funny. I think it's just more age-based. We've got 80-year-old people running the government, and there's no way that they're going to, I don't know, there are just very few people at that age who are going to digest what's going on in this world. But you speak to somebody who's 40, and they get it immediately or under 40, um, the interest is very high. And, you know, frankly, Frank, the, the real issue is I don't know how you ignore something that grows from $300 billion in value to $2.3 trillion, uh, you know, in the span of four years. I just don't, 
I don't understand how you, you know, that's not a nothing, right? That's. Uh, well, I think, I mean, this, this kind of gets off topic of, of, you know, kind of, this is more philosophical than, um, than anything else, but it, it's almost like the fact that it grew so fast. It's just people. And I'm sure when you speak with folks from your old world or, you know, even when I speak with, you know, people in my, in my personal life, they just can't believe it. It just seems too good to be true. It seems too weird. Um, so maybe the fact that it's almost a, it's almost a, a victim of its own success to an extent from a branding perspective, right? Um, when you see that so, sort of growth, you just can't imagine that there's a there there um, to an extent. Maybe that's contributing to it. But what's the impression your your you know old Greenwich Stanford friends and in, in those hedge fund circles are are they coming around? Or are they yeah. worried about regulation? I mean, not really. I mean, again, it's U.S. I think I think that fund managers see it as an opportunity to make money, right? Things trade. There's lots of volatility. If you're right on the market, you can make money. I don't think they see this developing ecosystem as something that could be 30, 40, 50 trillion in value, you know, 10 plus years from now. Uh, I think they're just not thinking about that. Um, you know, the growth thing that you mentioned before is a really good point. Um, but, you know, interestingly, I don't know if you've seen that on YouTube. There's a uh, Bezos, a Jeff Bezos interview, and it's early 90s. And he basically says that when he was at Princeton or just outside, just having left Princeton, you know, the Internet uh, adoption rate or the, the growth of the Internet was something like 247,000% or some absurd thing from one year to the next or, you know, thousands of percent. I, I can't remember the number. And he said, you know, that was something that he wanted to be involved with. That was interesting. That's where the growth was. And you kind of see that in our space. I mean, the perfect example is three years ago, or three and a half years ago, there were essentially zero stable coins. Okay, and last year, eight trillion dollars of stable coins were settled. Now, how many things in life go from zero to eight trillion in that short a period of time? And it's you can't just say, oh, that's nothing or oh, that's just a bubble or, you know, uh, and it happened. People used to say, oh, it's just because of, you know, zero interest rates. It happened while interest rates were going up a ton. So I think what's changed from the bear market, the end of the bear market in 1819, is that the number of what the traditional people like to call use cases have increased dramatically. Now, we could spend, you know, hours talking about all those various ones. But I mean, the stable coin one, I think, is, is uh, very obvious. And now, just this year, you have something that I think resonates with traditional people, which is the RWA growth. Um, you know, the real world, the real world asset uh, tokenization is something people have been talking about for a long time. But this year you started to have uh, actual growth. Numbers are small, but, you know, maybe it's these things around the edges that get people to understand why Bitcoin so important. You know, how cool Ethereum is. Uh, what are all these different interesting things going on in the in the space? Look, for me. Bitcoin and ETH are core assets. Um, everything else, at least for me, is a, a venture project. I just don't, I don't have the skill set to be able to determine, 
you know, which one is going to be the next one that achieves network effect. I mean, it appears that Solana is sort of moving down that road. Uh, you'll have guests on your show who you could spend, you know, hours on uh, discussing that, um, not me. But I just don't think, especially with the older guys, you know, you asked me about in Greenwich and Stanford, you know, if you have a very successful fund management business and you're, you're already super successful, do you really spend the time to lock yourself up in an office for six months and read through all the different things, Antonopoulos and, you know, Safadin Amus's book and Jan Pritzker's, but you actually read those books, listen to podcasts, go back and listen to 50 of your interviews. You probably don't. If you're 30 or 35, you have, you know, and I, so I really think that the younger fund managers, I do think are focused and plugged in here. Um, again, it's not all age, but in my experience and the people I've spoken with and the investors, it plays group, a big role. It, it really does. And I, I have to say, yeah. Do you think there's room for more um, funds in this space? Well, look, it's absolutely. I mean, I, the thing that's still most surprising to me is not the growth, is that I'm essentially the only guy doing what I'm doing. I thought when I started this you know, a few years ago that I'd have to move really, really quickly because the big players are going to come in um, who – you know, you have a Blackstone and the CEO there wakes up Schwartzman and says, oh, this is the future. And he allocates $10 billion and 50 people and we're finished. Like there's, I, I don't think we can compete with, with that. And so, you know, I'm a guy with a macro uh, investment, macro trading background. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't have the same kind of experience that those guys do. And so um, I've all, I worry that, the light switch is going to turn on for them. There's no question that we're going to have a lot more funds uh, that do what I do. And also, I think even even venture, I, I think there are a lot of venture guys from like with a venture tech background. They kind of get it. They're kind of involved. Um, trading of it, I will just say there will be many more trading uh, hedge funds and funds coming in. But that is an extremely difficult area because you have to be able to manage risk through completely insane volatility on liquid instruments. Um, you know, the core asset goes down 70% every three years, right? So if you're playing in some of the other things, I mean... You've got to be know, prepared, not for the faint of heart. Yeah, and there isn't enough liquidity, and you have a position, and there is liquidity one day and not, an, and not the next. I think you need to have a 24-7 operation with at least 20 people, at least in my view, that would be the case. I would, you know, to even attempt to have a liquid trading, uh, non-computerized, let's say, non-algorithmic um, uh, fund in the space. Like, I've never, I, I don't think there is a harder space. Well, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the program. We always appreciate your insights. Where can people maybe learn more um, or if they want to get in touch, where can they find you? Well, of course, uh, you know, I'm on uh, X. Uh, I'm there at DTAP Cap. But, you know, the 1RT a website, you can just click through. And my email, I think my, my email is even on. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not going to send you to investor relations. I, uh, I uh, 
we were on LinkedIn as well, uh, 1RT and 10T, and then also um, myself, Dan Tapiero. So thanks, Frank. Uh, always great to chat. Thank you so up. much. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we will we'll catch up again in uh, six months and, and hopefully these prices won't move on me. Well, listen, if they go any higher, uh, you, you might have to come find me on an island somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly.